Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. In police stations across the country, officers start their shifts in the briefing room. It's a place where law enforcement can speak openly and candidly about safety, training, policy, crime trends, and more. We think it's time to invite you in, so pull up a chair. Welcome to The Briefing Room. Today on The Briefing Room... What's it like to leave behind the life and home you love and start a new one with the dangerous people who you cannot trust? You might think I'm talking about going to prison, but I'm talking about long-term undercover work. Our guest, Matt Pitcher, can tell you exactly what it's like. Matt's extensive career in law enforcement includes lots of UC work, as we tend to refer to it, first as an undercover detective making drug buys, and later on two complex cases that took months, and in one case, a year, to complete. Matt's talked in depth about his two deep cover cases on our sister show, Small Town Dicks. Today, he's here to tell us about the personal toll it takes to pause your own life and assume someone else's identity. Matt, welcome to The Briefing Room. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Listeners, Matt has appeared twice on our other podcast, Small Town Dicks, and you can hear his episodes in season 10 and season 11. Season 10 is politically incorrect. That's the first case where Matt was uh, living kind of an extravagant lifestyle as a, as a UC. Uh, politically incorrect, season 10, and deep cover in season 11 of Small Town Dicks highlights Matt's efforts to take down an eco-terrorist group in North Carolina. I was hoping to talk about what led you into law enforcement and then if we could segue to the point that you said, okay, I think I want more involvement in law enforcement. I want so much that I'm going to kill my current identity and take on someone else's. Can you kind of walk us through how you got into this? Law enforcement in general, I think you're going to hear this from almost every officer you talk to, but there's always in your mind as either military or law enforcement, that that's kind of always an interest to you. And for me, my brother was in law enforcement and he was in a a department in Wilmington, North Carolina, actually. And he came and would tell me stories about foot chases and arresting bad guys, helping people, saving people, and didn't take long for me to say, well, that's, that's really cool and something I would enjoy. And a side note that I don't really talk about a whole lot, during this time I was actually out in California for a very brief six-month stint trying to become an actor. I know you guys never hear that from California, but like I had lived out in Wilmington, North Carolina for a little while with my parents and my brother, and there was actually a very large movie studio there. And I'd gone there just to be an extra, you know, and get paid fifty dollars a day and be in a movie, which you know I thought would help me get girls. Seemed like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. And when I went to sign up to be a uh, extra, the casting associate said, "Hey, have you ever thought about trying acting?" And I was like, "Well, no." <laughs> and she gave me a list, and she said, "Well, here's a bunch of agents that are really good in the area. 
why don't you reach out to them and see what they say? So of course I was like, well, why not? Uh, so I did that and I actually really enjoyed it. Like I loved acting. I actually ended up teaching classes a little bit with it for one of the agents I worked with and did some modeling, but also learned real quickly that a 5'8 model for a male just really doesn't <laughs> have it. <laughs> so I did a couple things there and then the agent said my best bet would be to go out to LA and they hooked me up with an agent out there. And of all places that I found that I could afford was a falling down motel in Compton. And so I'm staying there and I still like vivid as can be staying at this place. And there was an earthquake one night, first one and last one of my life. And I had no idea what to do for an earthquake. So I run outside and then I hear multiple gunshots outside. So I said, well, I'm going to go back inside. We'll face this. And it wasn't long after that, that I was decided that I wasn't up to pushing through with acting. My brother kept talking about law enforcement. And so while I was out there, I actually put in an application to the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. I wanted bigger city than what Wilmington had to offer. So I decided to, to reach out and go to Charlotte. And so at that point I came back home, as you all know, it takes a while to get through the application process and to do your interviews. And so I come back and then I get my first interview with a sergeant who is in charge of recruiting. He went through the whole thing of, well, what do you wanna do in the police department? And I said, well, I have three things that very much interest me. I said, one is SWAT, because, you know, every kid in their 20s wants to be a SWAT guy. <laughs> every one. Every single one, exactly. Yep. And then undercover work, because, you know, it sounds cool, and get girls. And then the third one was I wanted to be a minister or be in the chaplain program. And when I said that one, of course, he had to give me the funny look. And he goes, well, I've heard the first two, but I've never heard someone put the three of those together. <laughs> <laughs> like, even in the academy, I wanted to, to work drugs. Like, that was definitely a huge interest of mine. And I don't know, I can't put my finger on where it came about. Actually, I can come close because I read Billy Queen's book uh, when he infiltrated the Mongols. And that fascinated me, like, big time. And so I kind of... At that point, I was like, boy, that would you know, be the pinnacle of your career to do something like that. How old are you at this point? 23, 24. Okay, so you know everything, but you know nothing? Oh, yeah, big time, exactly. And I'm at that point in my career, once I get out of the academy, like I was lucky, you know, there were one or two districts I wanted to go to. They were David two, David three, And that was, you know, you got into everything all the time. That's not the suburbs. That's where all the action's happening type place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So getting to go to David three really paved the way for me to go into narcotics. Like right out the gate, I started working, making a lot of dope arrests, a lot of narcotics arrests. Now this would never be allowed today, but after I finished my FTO. An FTO is a field training officer. That's your coach while you're beginning as a cop. Exactly. Probably six months afterwards. They were real big at the time at some kind of projects to try to improve the community. So I wrote up one where I'd go undercover and just do dime buys and have somebody take them down right after me. For everybody listening, I don't condone this. It shouldn't have been done, and it should have never, ever happened. Dangerous thing I've ever done, probably. And the reason why you're saying it's dangerous, because when you're a customer buying drugs in that situation, you frequently get robbed. Exactly. But it got approved, and I had two other guys I went through the academy with that also got to go to David Three with me and used them as the takedown vehicle. And I was in the UC vehicle, and we'd go up and down the streets and 
I'd buy little dime bags of crack and then they'd come up and try and soup them up. What does a UC car look like for you in those days? So this one was a gold Chrysler 3000. I still remember the first UC car. And yeah, that was, um, that was an ugly car though. <laughs> it, it fit the purpose though. And it was beat up, which I needed. And how long after you're out of the academy are you on this new team where you guys are able to kind of be creative and, and proactive? How long after you started are you already into this lifestyle? As soon as I was done with that, I started, you know, if we weren't on a call for service, we were being squirrels. Looking around. Exactly. I'd say about every single night we could get in a foot chase, no problem. And we were every night making felony dope arrests. So at some point, you transitioned from being a patrol officer to you start doing undercover work, UC work. How did that come about? Oddly enough, I was actually doing some UC work while on patrol. My favorite story is, so we had a, our worst area, a public housing called Piedmont Courts, which is now demolished. But it was considered the worst of the worst spot to be. And you always had people on the corner there selling dope nonstop 24-7. So I had done UC one night and I'd gone down there and subject that I already knew pretty well from patrol was there on the corner, rolled up and he's like, I know who you are, you're a cop. The whole time in my hand, right by the window, I'm holding a $20 bill. Like, man, I'm not a cop, I just need to get my fix. And I need it, holding that $20 bill, waving it back and forth a little bit. And so finally, he's like, all right, <laughs> digs down his pocket and gives me a piece of crack, give him the 20 and off he goes. And of course we arrest him. Uh, takedown team comes in and takes him off. And he probably spent, you know, six hours in jail before he got out. And so the next night I'm down on patrol in uniform saying hi to him. And he still did not completely put it together. And so I started with that in patrol. And then I started getting really good with using confidential informants, which are people who, for different reasons, give you information that can lead you to a search warrant. They'll buy drugs for you so you can get a search warrant. So Dan had informants. In my caseload, working child abuse, uh, you don't necessarily have informants in that caseload, but I know Dan did, and to develop informants is pretty tricky sometimes. Sometimes it's because you have leverage on them, like, I'm going to charge you, or you can start helping us. How would you go about developing an informant, and how do you go about like vetting them so now you can list them as a CI in a search warrant, and they're credible, all that stuff? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so in Charlotte, basically, and it kind of started the exact same way you say, if I pick someone up for a stem, which is, you know, an item that they use to smoke crack cocaine, um, that's a charge of drug paraphernalia. It's a misdemeanor. It's not really a big charge at all, but most people don't want to spend any time in jail and will do what they can to get out. So that was a very common one for me is the, what we call flip somebody that had a stem. So first thing I'll say is, all right, first thing we got to do is, you know, make you what you just said, reliable. And so I say, you know, Give me information. What can you tell me about people in the neighborhood? And so they'd name off some drug dealers, people who I already knew um, were selling dope. So I was like, okay, information they're giving is credible. And they'd go into detail what the person looks like, what they drive, where they live, that kind of thing to really vet it out. And then you just say, all right, come on, I'm going to grab a UC car. I'll meet you at this location and pick them up. And then we go do a buy. You know, we'll give them money. It'll be documented. We'll have the serial number or whatever. And then we'll go with them drop them off somewhere, they go and do a buy, come back to us, give us the dope. And then uh, my thing was three times. 
they would do three buys for free that don't count for anything and that I don't use for charges or anything. It's basically letting dope walk. Um, but it's showing me that, all right, they can do what they say. They're reliable. Now I can use them. Then we send them to a house, same exact procedure. They go into the house, buy the dope from inside the house, come back out, meet with me, and then I'm off to the judge to write up a search warrant. So when I was still on patrol, I was kind of leading the way at being able to get search warrants and work informants. Um, so I got pulled from patrol, and they kind of created a, a weird position for me, I guess, in a way. I was a community coordinator slash street crimes officer. Ultimately, my goal was to make informants and go kick in doors or do UC work. So I got real into that and was doing that, you know, every day and loving it. So right now, your UC work feels kind of transactional, that you're addressing community issues but you don't have a target necessarily like a person or a group. Is there a time where you're getting pulled in by command staff saying, hey, we want you to divert from what you're focusing on right now. We actually have a bigger, I'll say mission. We don't really talk in those terms, but you have a bigger task and a bigger target. And here's what we want you to do. Was there a situation like that? So there are multiple. Um, The first time that I ever had that situation we had a gang and they were called the Hidden Valley Kings was the name of the gang. And they became a huge problem in Charlotte. And they had tons of guns, um, were moving kilos of cocaine at this point and well-operated. And probably 50 to 65 members. Um, and they were in this one community in David Three. It's called the Hidden Valley Community. And they were just wreaking havoc, everything from robberies to dope dealing and everything else. And so can mean, you know, can your informants, any of them get into it? And I did have an awesome informant who was able to do just that. And so used this person to do numerous buys into them that led the way to actually a big federal roundup on the whole gang. So we're here to talk about how going deep undercover changes you. And your first big, or should I say long, case is one we discussed on Small Town Dicks, Season 10, Episode 7. You were doing an undercover drug investigation that involved political corruption. How are you assuming the new identity for that case? So I had gone just previous to that to looking pretty rough. I had long hair, beard, all that kind of thing. And coming into this case, quickly realized when I met with the stripper and bought the cocaine um, that it was a different clientele altogether. Uh, and I knew the people I was looking at were, were different. These were most well-to-do, well-known, very flashy. They wanted to wear nice clothes, look very business professional, that kind of thing. So I switched up my appearance immediately, you know, went short hair, clean shaved all the time. The only thing I had were earrings in at that point to fit the, the club going scene. And of course I had to look like a billionaire too, so. You gotta get flashy, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is against, like one thing with UC work is you can't, you know, go way off and change who you are. Like you'll dime yourself out in a heartbeat. The FBI wanted me to wear this $50,000 watch. And I was, you're insane. There's no way I'm putting that on and going out. They just wanted to justify their money. <laughs> right. 
it wouldn't have fit who I was, and plus I didn't want to get robbed. So you tried to stay at least somewhat a little bit of you, even though you're this different person. Like you can't just change completely. But the you know, this is where things get really difficult with UC work. And that's why I, I don't think deep cover is really done anymore. And this is what I learned the hard way. You know, I talked about how after reading Billy Queen's book and all that, this is all I wanted to do. And then I get halfway into the first case and I realize what an idiot I am. And you don't realize it completely, but you cut out your other life. You're no longer you. You're this person and you're this person all the time. So the things you never thought about were well, all the friends you have, they're moving on. They're doing their own thing. You know, I, at the time of the first case, I had my wife and a newborn who was eight months old when I think I first got involved. And so, you know, we've talked about it since then, my family and I. You don't get it that their life is moving forward. And for you, your personal life, like who you are for real, just hit a pause button and stops. So you're you're that person that you were just before the case started. Um, and that person is gone for the amount of time that you're, you know, you're undercover. And what does this look like? Are you sleeping in your own bed at night or you have an apartment that's miles away from your house? No, yeah, you have an apartment, especially the first case. I was out all night, every night anyway, just because of the whole club atmosphere. You don't get to, to do much. You catch sleep where you can in between things. That's the kind of stuff that leads to divorce. Exactly. And, you know, thank God. And luckily, my wife is incredibly strong. And I tried to be like, I broke rules that you're not supposed to break with my wife. Like she knew what I was doing. She knew stuff about the case that technically she shouldn't. But I wasn't willing to sacrifice my family any more than I already was for the case. So I did break details that I wasn't supposed to. And I think that at least helped her some mentally to know a little bit of what was going on instead of being completely in the dark. I have a good friend who infiltrated the outlaws. The outlaws are the oldest motorcycle gang in the United States. And I believe they're headquartered in Chicago, Illinois. They were founded in Illinois. Yeah. My friend, he was working with the FBI with that. And he followed it basically by the book and didn't tell his wife anything. And he was still getting to come home a little bit and, you know, obviously outlaws go to strip clubs and everything else. So there were several times he'd come home and he would smell like a strip club. As you can imagine what that smells like. And, you know, following the rules and not saying where he was or anything like that, it ended up costing him his marriage. Something he really regretted. So that was kind of part of my decision as to why I played it the way I did. And so you have this major disruption in your personal life. And when the case is over, you're doing a different kind of undercover work that might be less disruptive, but it's still dangerous with these targeted transactions to take down drug dealers. Correct. Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. So two big operations in addition to a life on patrol and detective work where you're doing this kind of transactionally taking out drug dealers, targeted focused investigations on probably geographical areas in cities? Correct. So the way that it typically works, started arresting people for street-level drugs and doing undercover for street-level drugs when I was on patrol and then moved over to like a street crimes position. And then from there, I got into vice and narcotics. Now, I didn't even understand completely about undercover and vice and all that when you go to it. 
you know, we all think of the same thing. You know, we think of narcotic transactions, murder for hires, and prostitution. That's kind of what you, what you think of when you think of UC work. But the reality is it's everything under the sun. Unfortunately, everything from having to investigate other officers that may be doing something illegal. Like, unfortunately, you know, you have officers that are selling drugs sometimes and everything across the line. And so your job is to, to investigate all of it. And it's kind of funny. I always say the undercover unit or the vice unit is the black sheep of every single department. These are the ones that every agency knows they need them. Not a single agency wants to admit they have them kind of thing or even recognize them. Um, just because, you know, we do, for lack of a better word, the dirty work and we look dirty most of the time. You know, there's only, like I said, that one case where I actually got to be clean. But uh, the rest of the time, you know, I look pretty grungy most of it. Are you carrying a weapon on this? Is it kind of a play it by ear type thing or are you always armed? So when you're doing street level buys, you're always armed. Um, And then there's a golden rule to undercover work. And that rule goes to crap when you talk about deep cover. Because the golden rule is with undercover work that you always keep it business. If you want to stay alive doing undercover work, business only, it cannot become personal. If it becomes personal, then emotions get involved and that's when you get killed. That's when the person wants to, wants to take revenge kind of thing. Uh, unfortunately, deep cover work, if you keep it business, you're not going to achieve your objectives. You just can't. That's life. A lot of times when it's narcotics that you don't really know the person, you're not building a friendship, it's business only, you can stay armed, no problem. I've even had a couple cases where They've seen my gun on my side or anything like that. And basically, I'm like, well, hell yeah, I have a gun. You don't. And so you can play it off pretty easily. Both deep cover cases, I could not carry a gun. And I was searched pretty much, especially in the beginning. You're searched every single night. Like, so with the political corruption case, you know, we spent most of our time in strip clubs. And they used the girls, check them, make sure he doesn't have anything. And just the way it went. One of the scariest times on the second case was when I had to go shoot with my crazy best friend and that whole thing and sitting there and he's got the guns and I've got nothing and I hate to say it, but he was actually a good shot. <laughs> so. That's from the second episode you did with us on small town dicks in season 11. That episode is deep cover. You were in mortal danger. Yeah. So he's telling you, Hey, go put these targets up. Yep, exactly. And you're walking down range to put up targets and say, I'm really making this too easy for him. <laughs> I mean, you think about that, just the, oh shit, this could be it right here. I mean, just the anxiety of walking down with your back to somebody. Like, So we ended up at a gun range today and it's way off the beaten path. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, this was his farm, acres and acres and acres. You know, being at the range when you're in law enforcement, there are some very clear rules that if you violate them, you could probably get fired. You just won't work in law enforcement anymore. So cops inherently, anytime we're around a range, we're very careful and we're very measured. Everything is deliberate. And you think about, it's not like you ask your buddy there, hey, have you had firearm safety courses and training? That's just not a question that's going to be asked. So I've been around my buddies who don't have firearm training and I'm so conscious of what they're doing with, with a gun. That's gotta be a concern too. Like, Hey, is this guy just 
is he an idiot and I'm just going to catch around just because he's screwing around? <laughs> and I mean, obviously, and this guy in particular is so crazy as it is and does stupid things on a daily basis. And you don't know, is he high right now or is he of sound mind? Or Yeah, it, it's, it's not comforting. I think for listeners, when I think about UC work, I'm thinking – what do you do in the situation where it's starting to get a little hairy or somebody's starting to question whether or not you're legit? Do you have some situations like that that, that you can recall right off the top of your head? <laughs> um, more than I would like. Walk us through those. The one that I thought was probably going to get me killed one time, I was at a party in Charlotte, and this was a who's who party. You had celebrities at the party on down, and I had come to the party with a drug dealer, and... I don't, I'm not positive how much dope he brought to this party, but it was a very significant amount. Significant means something to me and Dan. What is significant in this lifestyle with this group? What is a significant amount of, I'm guessing it was cocaine? So, yeah, upwards of a kilo of cocaine, as well as Adderall. Because uh, that was real big with the club goers at that time, especially the girls. So he came with a ton of both. So I went to high school up in Pennsylvania. There was a girl from a high school that actually found her way down to Charlotte and had a quasi-celebrity status because she had been on one of the reality TV shows. And so I had a feeling she could be at the party. I knew she was in Charlotte, but I hadn't seen her since I was in ninth grade. I think, well, there's no way she'll remember me. So I'm like, all right, I know there's going to be a bunch of people. Like I talked myself into it that, all right, there'll be enough people there. I, I can play this. This won't be an issue. Um, and there were there about at least 200 people at this party. I mean, it was a big party, huge house. So at one point, my drug dealer buddy is in the media room and I'm in out by the kitchen area. And all of a sudden I hear my real name. Some of y'all, Matt, Matt. And I was like, no, this, this isn't happening. And kind of, you know how you can do that peripheral side glance and get somewhat visual to know. And sure enough, it was her. So not immediately turn and walk away, but kind of just that gradual. So it doesn't look like it caught you or anything like that. And go back and I was like, all right, well, I'll just hang out in the media room with him. And everything will be fine. Chances of her, because he was in the very back of it. Like, it was a huge auditorium type thing with uh, elevated scenes. Like, there's no way she's going to come all the way back. She probably doesn't even know who he is. So I go back and sit with him and within two minutes. Uh, and she walks with two of her friends. And they literally sit down right in front of us in this big auditorium. So at this point, I'm like, yep, I'm screwed. And now all of a sudden being in the back of the auditorium seems like a really bad idea. Because I actually looked and I knew... You go down the auditorium to the front, or media room, whatever you want to call it, and right to the left, there's a door that's a sliding open door that leads back to the woods. And I was like, all right, well, that's the escape plan. This goes wrong, and that's, that's where I'm running. And so I hear him whispering in front of us. And then finally, the one friend reaches back and starts whispering to him. So, you know, I'm starting to stretch out at this point. And he's like, I hear him say, you know, how would I know? With a few bad words. Why don't you just ask him? And so then, sure enough, one of the friends asked me, where are you from? Now we have a different problem because you always want to keep your cover story somewhat close to your real life to keep as many mistakes from happening as possible. So my cover story is I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I'm like, oh, crap. But I always used that I was from an orphanage just because it's very hard to get information on orphans, obviously. It's protected information. So that makes it harder for them to find me. So she reads back, what, Pennsylvania? Where at in Pennsylvania? It's like, oh. So I tell her where at in this orphanage, and that was a little ways away from my house, but I knew it from growing up from being at some camps and stuff there. So she turned around and said, okay. And then I see all three of them 
on Facebook. And funny enough, within 24 hours of that, you wouldn't believe what friend request I got. Shocker. Yeah, exactly. And so even like as soon as I was clear from that room, I actually sent out a message because I didn't have pictures of me on Facebook at that time. But we all know how it goes. You have friends who will tag you in a picture nonstop. So I left there and said, if you've tagged me in a photo, if you have a photo of me, it needs to be deleted from Facebook immediately and off and kind of left it at that. Trying to explain the importance of that to friends who are outside of law enforcement is uh, it's a difficult conversation because they just don't understand. Exactly. So that got all the pictures off. So as far as I know, she never completely put it together. I'm pretty sure she had thoughts, but couldn't figure it out. And meanwhile, the, one of the subjects, one of the targets is sitting next to you. And what are they saying? Do they approach you? Do they ask you questions? So I've, I've lost a lot of respect for this guy because he should have had me. This is the second time with this individual that it had actually happened. I had a cop call me out in a bar with this guy. Like I'm hanging out with him and a cop comes up, grabs me on the shoulder. Matt, what's going on, Matt? And I was basically, I'm not mad. Who the, you know, are you? And uh, he goes, CMPD. And at this point, you know, my eye, like, I, lucky I didn't punch him. Um, yeah. I was like, I have no idea. And my drug dealer buddy actually steps up and says, dude, will you leave him alone? He doesn't know who you are. I was like, so that's twice the, the same guy. And he didn't nail me on either one. I'm putting myself in your shoes here in these situations. And I just know for me, my anxiety <laughs> would be through the roof. <laughs> I'd be a mess. I couldn't act my way out of a wet paper bag. Most people would have issues in a situation like that. To remain calm, at least outwardly appearing calm, how do you address that? How do you mitigate that in the future? How do you go to sleep that night? Truly, like, how did you sleep that night? Um, actually, I don't think I did. But I got really good at, like, that anxiety, bottling it up for that time period. And then bursting later on is kind of the way that went. Like, after this particular incident, I waited till I was in a clear spot and called Blake and went on a tangent for probably about 20 minutes of just screaming. So Blake being Matt's handler, he's basically Matt's contact with law enforcement. Matt is checking in with Blake periodically to let him know how the investigation's going and that Matt's okay. Yeah. And then it's funny because you get off the phone or whatever, and like there are two times that I can specifically remember this. We are like, wow, that wasn't even me talking. Like I, I usually don't get really angry or anything like that. Just you're already under a lot of stress and you don't even realize at times. All that frustration, anxiety, and, and stress all comes out in a big word salad? Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. So I think deep cover may actually be a, a thing of the past because I, I don't know how, like to the point of embedding yourself with different groups, I, I think social media has killed that. Like, I don't know how you could possibly, you can't justify not having any pictures on social media anymore, even from a kid type thing. Like if you're younger than, you know, than when I am 46 years old, if you're younger than that, there's no reason you wouldn't be on social media at some point. 
the digital permanence of everything. Even, you know, like youth teams that you're a part of, they have Facebook pages that they post photos to. 100%. Even though you may be conscious of it, it doesn't matter. The people who are around you will post photos of you online. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. Exactly. What nobody realizes is with the facial recognition software that these companies like Meta has and all these other ones, they can take that you know, picture of you when you're 13 and a picture of you when you're 35, and it will put them together. Like it'll, it'll show the match. The book you speak of uh, with Billy Queen, it's, it's under and alone. When he infiltrates the Mongols, I've read that book as well. And it was fascinating to me, uh, just the lengths that he went to try to cover his identity, because this organization that he's trying to infiltrate, they run credit checks on him. Oh, 100%. So the organizations that you uh, were targeting during your career, did they have similar countermeasures? Yeah. So they actually, the first one, which was your mob people, criminal enterprises, they <laughs> went to a club one night and they said, hey, we need your driver's license and credit card after I'm already sitting down in the club. Yeah, we need both of them. And you don't have a choice. It's not one of those things. They say, well, I'm not giving this to you hand it over. And um, at the end of the night, I'm like, hey, need those back. Oh, no, no, we're going to give those to you tomorrow. We're going to hold on to those. And then, of course, FBI has all their systems that it flags, okay, yeah, they check this, this, and this. And so you can see what they were checking. But yeah, they'll, they definitely run through it. And the second case was worse than the first. The second case, they had a private detective or a private investigator that would follow you around. Based on your experience, Matt, what are the personality traits and what type of cop can work you see type of, of cases? What are the basic needs? And they can be intangibles. So the number one that you're always going to hear everybody say, and I'm going to call BS on right out the gate, is you have to be an extrovert. I tend not to be an extrovert. I go more introverted a lot of times. And the number one thing that you have to be able to do and if you can't do this, do not, do not, do not get into UC work is listen. If you cannot listen, some people have a very hard time. They get nothing against them, but that is not their forte. And if you can't listen in UC work, you're just, you're rolling the dice every single time that you are going to get, get in a bad situation because being able to listen to people probably save me more times than not, because you'll read the situation. You'll know when maybe I do need to look for a way to to slide off on this one. And when I say listen, like it's not just what they're saying. Obviously, you have to hear every word they're saying, but you got to listen to their body language too. There were a couple times where just even doing street level buys that I knew I was getting ready to get robbed. And you could tell by the way they were talking, going a little bit faster, that kind of thing, that I just was able to bail out and take off to avoid it. I'd say number one is being able to listen. It is uncanny, the little flags that we see. And I learned it from Dan and his senior officers, I remember being on a call with Dan and, and another guy and, and they both looked at him and said, now would be the time. And the guy looked at him kind of confused, like, what are you talking about? Now would be the time. And they're like, you're about to run. Now would be the time because there's a couple more officers coming into the area right now. And the guy looked at him like, oh, you're right. And took off running. You know, I was a brand new baby cop. Looking back, I'm like, oh, it was obvious. He's doing the little drop step, opening up, like checking out each each area, he's looking past us when he's talking to us, clenching the fists. You can tell there's about to be an event. And 
they just called him on it. And I think it was like, we're daring you, dude. We know what you're thinking. And when you deal with enough of those as a, as a cop, you don't need the event to happen to know what's about to happen. So truly, we profile body language. Like, I can tell when someone's wanted. They put the hood over their head and they turn the other way and they do an about face and walk the opposite direction you're, you're driving. I could always tell when people were going to run when I contacted them on the street. I knew it was coming because they're looking for their escape route. They blade their stance where you start to recognize little things like you're saying. You listen to their body language. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Like, I mean, same thing as an interview. You know, when, when you're getting to where you want that guy to say something, all of a sudden he goes way back. And you're like, oh, crap, I'm starting to lose him a little bit. And you rework things to try to bring him back in. But it's that kind of that same thing. When you finally put a case together and it's time to return home and you haven't been home for days or weeks or months, potentially, and you look, you know, in one case, very scraggly and unkempt, what's it like to walk in the front door back home? Rough. Do you give them a heads up or you just show up unannounced? No, I just showed up actually on the second case. First case, yeah, I think so. The hardest, and at least I learned this after the first one, the hardest part was I get home and I remember I talked about hitting that pause button. So now I'm hitting play again. And I thought everybody else in that house hit the pause button too. And I can hit play and everything is right back to the way it was where the reality of the situation is my wife had to figure out how to basically be a single mom with a, with a newborn and a full-time job. And believe it or not, as cops, we don't make enough money for the most part where she could just stay at home and be a stay-at-home mom. I know that's crazy to think about, but anyway. So she actually was hitting a very busy time at work when I finished the first case. And I come back thinking, well, now's going to be a great time for a vacation for all of us, you know, relax a little bit, get my head can get clear and all that. Great time for you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when she tells me, well, no, that's not happening. <laughs> Well, what do you mean that's not happening? You've just had the, the last two and a half years off. Well, oh, wait, that's not the case? <laughs> right. So the first case with her, like, once I got past that, that was good. I had a lot of trouble in the first case with friends. Um, I pretty much lost all of them. And a lot of, like, all my cop friends to the point where they knew I was working with the FBI and... There were a lot of rumors. I know the FBI purposely put out a couple of rumors so that nobody knew where I was or what I was doing. But then everybody comes back and they're kind of iffy on you. And it was, that was a very hard experience. Like I had um, a very, very, very good friend who, like, I mean, we were even roommates at one time, but like we haven't had a relationship since. Um, I haven't really even talked since then. On this first case, how... What was the longest time you were away from your wife? How many days? It would have been months. Um, it would have been over a month. I'm just trying to give myself and the listeners, like, we're not talking he went away for a week. We're talking 
months where it's just like, I'll talk to you when I talk to you. Yeah. And it's, it can get very hard. The first case was better than the second case. Second case, it was basically a year. Um, and 95% of the communication being text messages, um, and very brief text messages at that. Like, I can tell you the, the real conversations that we've had, like, one, she called me when my kid, when my kid has always been extremely well-behaved, everything like that, and he was at daycare, and he was just acting very moody, very down, that kind of thing, and they confronted him on it, of course, and he's like, I miss my daddy. Um, and my wife debated whether she was even going to tell me or not, but was more worried that how upset I'd be to find out about it later. So I was actually driving to, uh, to an environmental meeting, and she called me and and tells me, and I end up pulling over and bawling my eyes out for a few minutes. I almost dropped the case at that point. It was, she's actually part of the reason I stayed in is because it was the, well, if the bombing does happen, how are you going to handle it emotionally if you leave? Which, thank God, she got me through it. Matt, this bombing you're discussing is, this group is discussing planning a bomb to be majorly disruptive at a huge political event. Yeah. And the hard part was I pulled over, I bawled, and then you sit there, and I've got to go back to being the other person then. That was kind of hard. And then during that case also, my mom had uterine cancer. And so now, you know, my wife had to deal with that and the kid, and I tried to get clearance to see my mom at the hospital and was denied. Um, it was felt too big of a risk. And so I came, I finished that case and I come home and I, I was mentally not there. Like I was, I was pretty gone after that case. I was strained. I came home, I hadn't showered in over a month when I came home because everybody else stank and I wasn't going to be any different. If I had to smell them, they were going to smell me. (laughs) Kind of the way I looked at it. So I got home and showered forever, shaved, and then immediately got sick. Like, I felt awful. Like, I think my body just was shutting down at that point. But um, that one, they literally, like, the agency was trying to do the right thing, and I think they did the best of their ability. I didn't go back to work for over a month. They wanted me to take time and adjust, and we we were at least that time able to take a vacation, too, so that was kind of nice. But I saw a psychologist afterwards, and I definitely struggled for a while after that case. And then I think another hard part is you get so wrapped up in everything, and you're you know you have adrenaline dumping the entire time. And I came back to work, and the one thing I fought with for the remainder of my career was getting the same sense of fulfillment almost as what I got during that, and just could not get back to that level. A lot of people talk about overtime as one of the benefits of being a cop. Well, when you're working undercover, 24 hours a day, you're on duty, you're working. Are there any considerations regarding compensation when you're working a UC case? I did get some the second case, not very much. I think my per hour would have come out to around three to five cents an hour is what I was making. My last question, was it all worth it? Prior to the case, this is all I ever want to do. I'm finished with the case. Well, I'm never doing that again to, you know, a year later. Hey, here I am. I'm going to do it again. 
Um, if I am completely honest with myself, I loved the work. The actual undercover part itself, for me, was the best part of the job, 100%. The pain it put my family through, the mental stuff it did to me once I was out, make it where it's not desirable in that sense. But, you know, I'm extremely proud of the work I did in both cases. The second case, you know, I can say for 100%, had I not done the work, we would have had a bombing in Charlotte. And so being able to say that gives me, you know, a lot of comfort. Matt, first of all, thank you for the time and uh, really appreciate you getting into more details about what it takes to work undercover. Well, I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate it. On the next episode of The Briefing Room. In policing, you have to invest in the bank of public trust because you're going to withdraw from it from time to time, right? You're going to have incidents, whether they're completely justified or whether it's just a cop acting like an asshole, right? Like sometimes a cop acts like an asshole and yells at somebody and gets reprimanded, but it's all over the news. Those incidents, you're going to have to explain. You're going to have to be forthcoming, but you're not going to win people over then. You have to do that work every day. That's next week on The Briefing Room. The Briefing Room is produced by Jessica Halstead and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. Executive producers are Gary Scott and me, Yardley Smith. Our production manager is Logan Heftel. Logan also composed the theme music. Soren Bajan is our senior audio editor. Monica Scott runs our social media. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. Thank you to Speech Docs for providing transcripts. To read those transcripts or to hear past episodes, please go to our website at thebriefingroompod.com. The Briefing Room is an Audio 99 production. And I cannot go without saying thank you to you, all of you, our fans. You are the best fans in the pod universe. And I can say with complete confidence, nobody is better than you. 